Hello, Warp Tour fans. You are listening to episode three of How the Fuck Did We Get Here, the worst culture podcast on the web. I'm here with Mason. Mason says hello like Tom DeLong from Blink-182. And Nader. Nader says hello like Tom DeLong from Blink-182. On this podcast, we trace modern cultural phenomena back to their roots to try to answer the question, how the fuck did we get here? On today's episode, we are finally giving hip-hop a little bit of a break and covering a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, pop-punk revivalism. This new wave of a decades-old genre includes artists like Willow Smith, Machine Gun Kelly, Poor Stacy, and Kenny Hoopla. Willow Smith is fire. That's like one of the only artists I've actually listened to out of those artists. Besides Machine Gun Kelly, but no one likes him, so... Oh well, yeah, Will Smith is crazy. I, I don't like him either. MGK I cannot say too much about. Yeah, no. Yes, uh, before we jump into anything historical, I think it's pretty important to stop for a second and ask ourselves, what exactly is pop punk? And what separates it from plain old punk rock? And I'll be the first to admit that even as a lifelong fan of punk, it's kind of a tricky question to answer. I mean... I would probably say that of all music, punk, metal, and alternative rock, sort of in general, have some of the blurriest genre lines of any music out there. But I am going to do my best, so don't kill me if you disagree. Now, the most obvious thing that I could probably say about pop punk is that it tends to draw more influence from pop than other subgenres of punk does. And what I mean specifically by this is that pop-punk tends to place more emphasis on stuff like catchy hooks and melodies, as well as a more traditional song structure than other kinds of punk does. And lyrically, it tends to revolve around more relatable topics like love, loneliness, stress, shitty jobs, parents, etc, etc, etc. Okay, Chuck, I want to ask you what a traditional song structure is, but I want to say that when like I thought about asking this question, or like I put it into the script that we wrote. I've learned a lot about song structures from this one class that I'm in, so I'm really interested to what you have to say about this. So, as far as, like, I'm concerned, my understanding of more traditional song structures is, like, kind of like a verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, or, like, some variation of that, where it's, like, a little more clearly defined what parts of the songs are what. And that's in pretty stark contrast to stuff like if you've ever heard hardcore, like fucking up, like Black Flag or like Circle Jerks or like any of those bands. A lot of those bands will like just totally throw song structure out the window and they'll make like a 40 second song that's just like a blast of super high energy, super aggressive music. And there's no clear definition of like what's what. So but, but you couldn't if you had to give a song structure like name to what pop punk is usually based off of do you know what structure that would be fuck no if you don't you don't know it's fine it's fine (laughs) no i don't do you know well i don't know but i know of song structures that like a music that music or modern music originally derives from but i'm not gonna go into that because it's so cool do you go to school or something No, but no, I'm, yeah, I'm no. like like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, or verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus, like more yeah. traditional shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but with all that being said, that's just my take, and there is 
still some debate about what exactly constitutes pop punk within the punk community. I would say a lot of debate, actually. And the description that I gave is pretty much just the one that I feel is the most accurate, while hopefully will also spark the least outrage, because I am not trying to get stomped out by somebody in checkered vans. <laughs> Happened before, will not happen again. What's wrong with checkered vans? I had checkered nothing, vans. Nothing. Nothing at all. I'm just okay. not trying to get fucking that waffle pattern on my upper lip again. <laughs> now, if you're already a punk fan, you might notice that this definition also encapsulates classic punk pretty well, and that is a bit of a point of contention within the punk scene. See, some people don't consider classic punk, like the Ramones or the Buzzcocks or the Damned, to be pop punk. And those people are what I like to call wrong. Oh, you're so opinionated and cool. Wow. Hot take, hot take. But before you start moving on and ranting about all these different cool bands, whatever, um, I feel like Nader and I should preface this with saying how much we actually are into pop punk, because like I think Nader has talked to me about it and he's grown a liking for it recently, and I've only sort of dabbled in the genre a little bit, but nowhere as near as intense as you. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know too much about it. But I just like how that shit sounds. Like, that's it. I don't know any of the fan bases, the lore, whatever is going on in that scene. I don't know. I couldn't think of a better word. But uh, I do like some of the music. Like, a a lot of the music is fun to listen to. See, in the mid to late 1970s, early punk bands started putting out their first albums, and some of these projects included the Ramones' self-titled album in the U.S., and the Buzzcocks' Another Music in a Different Kitchen, as well as the Damned, 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 in the U.K. These were some of the earliest punk albums ever made, and they were big-time poppy. The reason that some people don't consider these albums to be pop-punk is totally valid, though. I was kind of just being controversial when I said that people who don't agree are wrong. They, they, it's totally valid to think that they're not pop-punk. Why are some albums like considered more pop-punk or pop than punk? Well, it's less... It's not that they're considered more pop than punk. It's that they're just considered punk. Because that's just, at the time, you know, it's just what punk sounded like. Punk just sounded different. It was way poppier than it would become later on. And for that reason, some people don't count punk from this era as pop-punk, because it wasn't intentionally poppy. That's just what punk sounded like. It sounded more poppy, and therefore it was just punk. Okay, so by accident, then, what you're saying is that this music was sort of ahead of its time. Uh, that's kind of tough. I think that to say that it's ahead of its time would be a little bit of, like, a... I don't know, like a misnomer, almost. Because it's... What would come later would sort of, in my opinion, not everybody agrees, but what would come later and would be considered pop punk would be based off of this kind of punk. So it's not that it was like they were accidentally ahead of their time. They were just laying the groundwork for every subgenre that would be birthed out of punk. Like they were creating punk and it was fairly poppy. So some groups would take the harder elements of that and run with it to create hardcore. Some groups would take the poppier elements and run with that to create uh, pop punk, like that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that makes sense then. Sort of like a precursor, like inspiration for stuff that would come later on. Exactly. Okay. But as far as people saying that this kind of music wasn't pop punk, 
because it wasn't intentionally poppy, I would have to disagree slightly. Because even if it wasn't intentionally poppier than the punk that was coming out at that era, given that it basically was the only punk that was coming out of that era, that's just what it sounded like, it was definitely more poppy than a lot of the rock that was coming out of that era. Because at that same time, bands like Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin were coming up, and when you put Black Sabbath next to the Ramones, it's pretty obvious that the Ramones are trying to be poppier in their music than other bands were. And the Ramones openly admitted their love for bubblegum pop music that came before them. A big part of their sound came from the bubblegum pop music that they were listening to. Okay, you sort of already answered this question, but would you say that this early style of pop punk was influential for what would later become traditional or popular pop punk? And I mean, when I ask that, I mean like literally the stuff that becomes the mainstream. Yeah, definitely, especially like in an etymol like etymological sense, because you know Screeching Weasel, who we'll get into later, were super heavily influenced by the Ramones, and then bands like Green Day and like Blink One Eighty Two would go on to be super heavily influenced by Screeching Weasel. So there's a pretty clear line of influence from super early shit to what would become pop punk later. You feel me? Yeah, that makes this episode really fucking easy. Okay. Yeah, only because you didn't have to research it. That's why you feel that way. Now, whether that, like, super simple bubblegum formula that, like, utilized a couple chords and a very basic traditional song structure, whether that was a creative choice or if it was just because a lot of the bands, I'm looking at the Ramones specifically, could only comfortably play a small handful of chords is kind of up in the air. But I think the point still stands. Like, a lot of these bands were not fucking mozart level musicians they were working (laughs) with what they knew how to do the other reason that i have to disagree though is because and i kind of already covered it from an etymology standpoint some of these bands sounded really fucking similar to what everyone would be able to agree on is pop punk as a subgenre and obviously like i said some of these bands heavily influenced early pop punk bands i.e ramones influencing screeching weasel The Buzzcocks, in particular, have some songs that sound very similar to The Descendants or Screeching Weasel, but we will come back to those guys in a minute. Real quick, I'm noticing I've never heard of The Buzzcocks before now. Is there any albums or singles that were popular that I might know of that I'm just not realizing are by them? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. Uh, Their most popular song, at least if you go on Spotify and look at Based on Popularity, Their most popular song is called Ever Fallen in Love, brackets, with someone you shouldn't have fallen in love with. Most people just call it Ever Fallen in Love. And it made its way onto the Shrek 2 soundtrack. They fucking what? What? They... what? I don't know if it was a cover. I think it might have actually just been the original. But yeah, the Buzzcocks were on the Shrek 2 soundtrack. So to all my punk fans out there... If you, you probably have heard Ever Fallen in Love, but if you haven't, go listen to it, and then just fucking bask in the fact that it made it onto Shrek 2. Also, what's Yo, with the name? you're not fucking lying, I just listened to it. What the fuck? What's with yeah, the name of the band, that's though? crazy. What do you mean, what's with the name of the band? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, what the fuck is a buzzcock, bro? I'm thinking about a BP penis. <laughs> Yo, chill. Fuck if I you know, I don't know. Where did the Sex Pistols come from? It was kind of like edgy, but like fun edgy. Like, sex Pistols sounds know. a whole lot cooler than Buzzcock. Yeah, for real. Well, to be fair, the Buzzcocks 
tended to be a little more tongue-in-cheek than the Sex Pistols. The Sex Pistols were kind of took themselves a little more seriously than the Buzzcocks did. In my opinion, some people are going to disagree. But, yeah, the, the Buzzcocks were a little more... They were a little more fun with it. In that sense, that fits, then. That fits. That makes sense, then. Anyways, as punk progressed through the late 70s and into the early to mid-80s, it would move away from a lot of the pop stylings that were found in early punk to become more thrashy, more political, and just harder in general, mostly from a sonic standpoint. And what I mean by this specifically is hardcore. In 1979, the forefathers of hardcore, Black Flag, would put out their first EP, Nervous Breakdown. And that same year, one of my personal favorite bands, the Dead Kennedys, or Dead Kennedys, depending on who you ask, would put out their first single, California Uber Alice. Now, both of these bands were formed in California, and their music, along with a few other absolutely fantastic bands like Agent Orange and The Adolescents, would help cement the influence and importance of the California punk scene. Do different scenes from different locations come with a sound that is unique to their area? Sort of like the classic hip-hop scenes out of Cali and NYC? Uh, that's a really tough question to not get people mad at you over. <laughs> Sound-wise, I feel like they had mild, like, distinctive traits, but they weren't totally fucking standout in the same way that, like, like west coast rap had like g-funk you know what i mean like there wasn't anything that was like super distinct sonic markers but there were some sonic markers of what was what and also they both lay claim to like different things like for example new york basically started punk because the ramones were from new york but california basically started hardcore but then new york would have like a very distinct hardcore scene that would go on to be known as nyhc new york hardcore um and that would as it evolved that would kind of become a little more metal inspired and like a little heavier in some ways and also new york invented moshing which was the evolution of what california invented which was slam dancing Wait. so like they played off of each other in a lot of ways is moshing like mosh pits right is that what that yeah. is yeah, so, like, slam dancing is, like, literally people jumping up into the air and, like, slamming against each other. Moshing is, like, people full-on fucking, like, shoulder-checking each other, throwing elbows in the pit, like, knocking people's teeth out, like, just, like, <laughs> full-on fucking chaos. Like, that's moshing, and slam dancing was more, like, jumping up and down and bumping into each other type hey, deal. Hey, shout out New York for that invention, because moshing yeah, is fucking fun. Finding uh, that out now, it's like actually super fitting for that to come out of New York. That makes, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, no, makes sense. 100%. But a couple years after the release of Nervous Breakdown by Black Flag and, of course, California Uber Alice, the forefathers of pop punk, as we know it at least, would drop their first full studio album. In 1982, Descendants would drop Milo Goes to College. Now, Descendants are widely considered to be the first pop-punk band, at least in terms of what comes to mind when people say pop-punk now. Like, if you hear 
pop punk and you think like Green Day, like Paramore, Blink-182, that kind of stuff, that was started by Descendants. The thing is, though, that even though they would father this subgenre, at their outset, they were very much a part of the California hardcore scene, and they fit right in, especially with their first EP, and to a slightly lesser extent, their first album. While the lyrics on the album were classic pop-punk-style lyrics about love interests, parents sucking, being cool or being lame, etc., and the melodies were generally a lot tighter, catchier, and poppier than what most of their contemporaries were putting out, they were also, especially at this point, very much a hardcore punk band, albeit on the more melodic side. How and why did this become the norm for this genre's lyrical content? I feel like this is very specific, but not specific at the same time. But like, this is, I don't want to say this is the only genre that carries this sort of tone within the lyrical content, but it sort of is at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, it's very specific. If you think of like pop, this is the sort of lyrical shit you think of. They were a band that made hardcore a little more accessible. Like, a lot of hardcore was kind of, like, very, like, super edgy. Like, some of these, like, a lot of these hardcore bands, especially bands like Dead Kennedys or, like, The Germs, they were, like, hyper-political. They were talking about very specific politics that not everyone could relate to. Descendants offered a way for people to kind of get into this sort of hardcore music with lyrics that pretty much everybody could relate to. Like when, when, when Milo, who is the lead singer, would sing about girls not liking him or, you know what I mean, just goofball shit. They have like songs about wanting to be a bear so you can eat fish and shit in the woods. Like it's just very accessible. Anyone could kind of get into it. Hey, what, what, did you, what did you say? They have a song called I Want to Be a Bear. And it's about wanting to be a bear so you can eat fish and shit in the woods. I don't even like I don't even know how to comment on that. Yeah, like why why why? That's like, what I mean. It's silly. Why? It's intentionally goofy. It's not meant to be serious. The style they played it in was super hardcore and you could thrash dance to it, you could mosh to it. But at the same time when you listen to it on a record, you could relate to it no matter kind of who you were. If you're a teenager, you can kind of relate to these goofy lyrics and laugh at them or relate to like wanting to find a girlfriend or whatever and not being able to like just stuff that anybody can get into and that was something that attracted a lot of people who loved hardcore style music but couldn't relate to what was being said in the songs okay so did this or would you say that this band is sort of one or the or one of the bands that made this lyrical content normal in this genre then because i feel 100%. like 100 okay yeah okay they were the band that like allowed because at the same time like hardcore never really like those lyrics never really super caught on in the hardcore scene those types of lyrics but that's why they were the forefathers of pop punk because while those types of lyrics while the hardcore scene remained fairly politically charged and had very strong ideals in certain senses and like this kind of stuff their type of lyrics inspired a lot of musicians who were like, well, I want to play fast, kind of hard-sounding music that still has some melody in there, and I want to sing about whatever goofy shit. But like I said, a lot of the songs on this album were still played with 
blistering speed and were fairly aggressive, which was a bit of a holdover from their first EP. Their first EP, Fat, was straight up hardcore. And arguably, this helped the band a lot, because California's hardcore scene was more or less in full swing at this time, and it had picked up a fair amount of pretty fucking dedicated fans. So playing the same shows as, and occasionally even swapping members with, bands like Black Flag and Dead Kennedys helped win them some credibility and name recognition within this scene. And if the Descendants had left it at their first album, Milo Goes to College, they probably still would have gone down as one of the tightest, most standout acts in the California hardcore scene. But they were just warming up. Following Milo Goes to College, the band went on a brief hiatus, but then Descendants came back with an album that some, such as Finn McKinty, point to as being the first ever true pop-punk album. This album was the 1985 release, I Don't Want to Grow Up. Why exactly does he think this is the first true pop-punk album? What's the criteria for that? Um, it's a little weird. I, I think a lot of people could make the case that, uh... Milo Goes to College could sort of be considered kind of the first pop-punk album, too. But I think for his, kind of from his standpoint, there are a couple songs on here, like specifically songs like Silly Girl, that really laid down the sonic template for pop-punk. And kind of building off that, the album was just super influential to pop-punk. Like, a lot of bands that would go on to be like the face of pop punk later on would cite this album as influence because some of the songs on there were a little slower like a little very much relatable especially like i'm looking specifically at silly girl like that's one of the songs on the album that is like holy shit this was legitimately kind of ahead of its time like this was pop punk while pop punk was still in its very beginning stages and descendants were pretty much the only band making it so mm. I, I would probably give Milo Goes to College a lot of credit as being the first pop-punk album, but there are a couple tracks off of I Don't Want to Grow Up that are, like, undeniably straight-up just pop-punk. Now, this album, I Don't Want to Grow Up, it did have some hardcore cuts on it, but as a whole, the band doubled down on accessible lyrics and pop elements. Knowing where pop-punk is today, or, like, being a little bit more familiar with the sound of it now... As you've been explaining this, I'm starting to like make the connections and really understand like where it all came from. This makes a lot of sense now from where it is now. Well, good, Mason, because that's the no. fucking point of the podcast. So <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, I'm learning. I'm learning. I hope people listening are learning too because I'm like, I'm really connecting some dots here. Okay? My brain is actually working. Yeah. <laughs> I'm proud of you, buddy. Chuck, you're doing a great job. You should be a professor one day. That was wow, nice that means a lot to me. Maybe I'll consider it. No, don't do um, that. <laughs> now, whether or not you agree that I Don't Want to Grow Up was the first ever true pop-punk album, the influence of Descendants and their sound, especially their sound from this album onward, literally fucking cannot be overstated. For whatever it's worth, AllMusic.com has a list of bands that the Descendants influenced, and this list includes Green Day, No Effects, Propagandi, Fall Out Boy, Pennywise, Blink-182, The All-American Rejects, and The Offspring, among others. But that's just AllMusic.com, so if you don't want to take their word for it, 
Some of these bands have even directly cited The Descendants as influence. In fact, Tom DeLonge of Blink-182 has gone so far as to say that Blink was literally a direct product of The Descendants. And Mark Hoppus of Blink-182, obviously, has stated that the song Silly Girl, which I name-checked earlier, changed his life in a way that no other song had up until this point. And they're not the only ones. Uh, Fat Mike of No Effects has repeatedly said that he was a huge fucking Descendants fan. Like, pretty much all these bands who were making pop punk or whatever following them have cited them. It's pretty undeniable how influential they were. Is this, like, Kate Cuddy's soundtrack to my life influencing a ton of rappers today? I I fucking guess, dude. I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know. I it came to my mind. When you said, like, oh, like, these certain band members, like, yeah, this song changed my life and it influenced me, blah, blah, blah. The only song I can think of that I always hear tons of people talking about is Soundtrack to My Life from that Cuddy, from Cuddy's first album. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, yeah. Like, it, 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 they, the Descendants as a whole are just ridiculously influential in mm-hmm. punk in a way that I don't think any other band can really claim. Like, genuinely, I really do think that Descendants are arguably the most influential punk band of all time. Could you say that all the bands that came after them are Descendants of them? Yo, fucking... Oh, I'm, not even, I'm not even gonna say anything. I'm not gonna say anything. I'm gonna hold my tongue. Yo, I'm hilarious. I'm so funny. Very I'm so funny. It's crazy. Oh, oh my god. Why are you laughing? I don't understand. Why I don't understand. Why you myself back there? Jesus. Anyways. I was well, just violence was on my head right there. Anyways, in talking about Blink 182 and Green Day and these bands, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So bringing it back, two years after I Don't Wanna Grow Up dropped. Another massively influential pop punk band would drop their first album, and that would be the 1987 release of the self-titled debut album by the now infamous Screeching Weasel. Now this first Screeching Weasel album was definitely on the hardcore side, a lot closer to Black Flag than to Blink. But there were definitely a few tracks, namely Murder at the Brady House, that hinted towards the raw talent for pop punk that this band possessed. And it also had a song about microwaving pets, and I wanted to toss that out there because the song is fucking hilarious. You, you said what? What? Does this band have something with, like, the noises that dying animals make? Screeching weasel and microwaving pets? Like, what's this all about? This is some serial killer behavior. This is, like, some you shit, Chuck. Like, uh, I, get okay. you're, I get why you're into this music, though. Well, don't say that on <laughs> mic, thank you. But, um... <laughs> Yeah, no, they it, it's just a goofball-ass song about just being, like, a degenerate suburban kid. It's fucking hilarious. I just wanted to throw it out there. But the real reason that I wanted to highlight Screeching Weasel is because I feel like they are pretty fucking influential. To the point where Mike Durnt, the bassist for Green Day, even played in the band at one point. And early Blink-182 was also heavily inspired by Screeching Weasel's sound. I think they covered them as well. And that is just to say, I think that their influence is pretty hard to deny, even if Ben Weasel is kind of a fucking douchebag. Why was he considered a douche, though? Okay, so buckle up. Um, The big thing that happened that brought everyone's attention to the fact that Ben Weasel is a bit of a douchebag was in 2011, I believe. 
Now, at the time, he was on a record label that was owned by Fat Mike of No Effects, who got name-checked earlier, Fat Rec Chords. While on this record label, he wrote an album, and at least one of the songs, there's like two or three that are arguable, but at least one, it's pretty hard to deny that it's just like a weird diss track aimed at No Effects as a band. So he's kind of just dissing the band whose lead singer owns the label that he's on, which is not the best look in the world. But regardless, it doesn't really matter, because while he was doing, I believe it was a South by Southwest showcase for bands, he was on stage and he was performing. And then at some point in the show, somebody started throwing ice cubes at him. And this continued for a while. He took a couple handfuls of ice cubes. And then while performing one song, he caught an ice cube right pretty much in the eye it was like right above his eye like right in the eyebrow he got fucking nailed with an ice cube so he finished the song out and then basically shouted into the crowd who the fuck is throwing ice cubes and a very drunk individual who was fairly close to the stage raised their hand and pretty proudly admitted that they were the one who had just pegged him in the face with a fucking ice cube this and old. in response it was actually a woman but oh, in response God. to this, Ben Weasel, because the stage was probably only about like four feet high, some shit like that. He jumped off the stage into a full flying Superman punch and <laughs> just clocked this woman right in the fucking eye. <laughs> Holy fuck. Yo, she and, had it coming, though. Yeah, she got well, that one, though. That's argu- I mean, the whole situation wasn't good, but regardless like there's there's people who defend that and i'll be like well that kind of shit happens at punk shows like in punk shows if you're being loud and obnoxious and somebody punches you that's kind of the punk kind of thing that'll just happen which is debatable you can agree or disagree shit like that does happen at punk shows especially earlier punk shows but that's a pretty athletic move though to jump off a four foot stage yeah, yeah. and hit someone in the face like that's, yeah he was like in his 30s or some shit too but anyways so he clocked this woman in the fucking face hard which was he might have gotten away with that because she was throwing ice cubes at him, which was pretty fucked up, not cool. So he might have gotten away with that one. But then, when one of the venue, I think she was either a booker or a promoter, one of the people who works behind the scenes at the venue jumped in basically to, like, pull him off because, like, he clocked this woman and then people got in between them and he was still kind of, like, trying to get at her. And then a venue promoter, somebody like that, jumped in and tried to pull him back off of, like, out of the crowd, basically. And when she did that, he turned around and put his forearm across her throat and shoved her hard as fuck. And obviously, catching a forearm to the throat is not fucking comfortable. So she Mm -hmm. let go of him and, like, spun around to kind of be like, all right, fuck, you know what I mean? Like, she just spun around because she'd just gotten shoved hard across the throat with a forearm. Mm -hmm. And then when she spun around, he followed up that shove with a mean liver shot to this woman. Whoa, okay, now he's doing too much. Yeah, and, uh... I think I think somebody else caught an elbow. It was just a mess. Like definitely like the first one people debate about, but the second one when he just yeah. like punched that woman in the liver, that was just yeah, like that not cool undeniable right there. That's at like, all. <laughs> so then following that, every member cuz like I said, he's the only consistent member of Screeching Weasel. Every member left the band and he got dropped from his label 
Fat Wreck, partially because of this, and also because he pretty much just wrote an open diss song towards Fat Mike and No Effects, like, on the album that he was on tour to basically promote. So he got dropped, and then a couple of years later, Fat Mike got in a lot of trouble for something similar, where a fan jumped on stage, and Fat Mike basically threw him on the ground and kicked him in the mouth with his Doc Martens, which... Jesus. Jeez. If you fucking know Doc Martens, you know that she'll split your fucking lip open. So anyways, Jesus. Fat Mike did that, and then Ben Weasel wrote this super long, like, super douchey letter, basically just gloating over the fact that people were mad at Fat Mike now, and he was... Basically, the tone of the entire letter was, Haha, sucks to be you. Bet you okay, wish you didn't yeah, do that. Like dickhead. Yeah. So he's he's kind of a douche. But, at the same time, Screeching Weasel... I consider to be highly influential. They never really got super big mainstream success, but a lot of pop punk bands cite them as being influential. And that's kind of just, you know, he's a douchebag, but you can't really deny the influence of the band. Getting back on track, following these Descendants releases and the Screeching Weasel releases, I have a bit of a hot take about punk at this time. In my personal opinion... By 1989, which was two years after the release of Screeching Weasel's first album, pop punk was pretty much a fully-fledged subgenre, with its own unique sounds and distinct stylistic markers. Since I know nothing about the genre, why is that a hot take? Just because it would evolve so much later on that what most people think of when they think of pop punk has nothing to do, like, unless you're like me and you're, like, a little bit of a punk nerd or like a little bit of a music nerd like if you say pop punk people aren't gonna fucking think descendants and screeching weasel like they're gonna think bands that would come on in the next decade the 90s mm -hmm. okay but... i have a qu i have a question for you then so mm -hmm. are you familiar you're familiar with rock and roll like uh, the What's history that? of it a bit shut up like not the genre but like the history of it a little bit a little bit okay do you know the song rocket 88 no okay then what you said is completely accurate Okay. Yeah. But, um, fuck was that interaction right there? What? If if you know like the history of rock and roll, then that makes sense. Because like Rocket eighty eight is considered by some people to be the very first rock and roll song, but that was like in the early fifties or something like that. But like, I like I don't know that I didn't know that song before like a week ago, and I listened to rock and roll, but I didn't know that song. So I don't so know. you literally just said that to flex the fact that you are in a history of rock and roll class <laughs> at the school that we go to. I'm learning. I'm learning was. a lot. You can cut this part out. I'm learning a lot. You're so cool, man. You can cut this part yeah, out. You probably no. I'm leaving it in so people know that you're a pretentious dingling. I aspire to. I'm be not as pretentious as you though, so it's like it's okay. Anyways, before we even start <laughs> to go down this road, in my opinion. As far as a sound goes, pop punk had pretty much defined itself at this point. It was still very early, and bands would go on to shape it into what it would become and really make it their own. But at this point, Descendants had put out four albums, all of which were fucking critical to the shaping of the subgenre. And Screeching Weasel had put out their second album, which was a lot less hardcore and a lot more pop punk. This album was titled boogada 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 which like i said was highly influential and also really fucking fun to say what the fuck yeah and there were some tracks off this like dingbat which by the way is my karaoke song if anybody in the audience no wants one to go cares to a karaoke no one cares no one wants to go to karaoke bar with you no nope. that's fair that's fair um but there were just songs on this album that were 
very much pop punk and everything the descendants were putting out especially post i don't want to grow up was very much pop punk and so that's kind of why i feel like pop punk had sort of cemented itself as a subgenre by this point that being said there were definitely a ton of other bands at this time that were laying down the blueprint and putting out music that would really help to build and shape the pop punk music come these were bands like dag nasty Husker Du, The Replacements, and Sonic Youth, you know, groups like that. The thing is that while these bands would unarguably go on to be hugely influential to later pop punk, at the time, a lot of them weren't really in the sort of scene that we're kind of talking about, save for kind of Dagnasty, who were basically like melodic hardcore. But a lot of these groups were kind of like artsy, experimental, indie, rock, punk influence type stuff and finn mckenty classifies a lot of these groups as college rock which i would completely fucking agree with and as a quick aside i really don't want to downplay the influence of husker do without them we arguably wouldn't have green day at all and their contributions sonically are arguably way more important than that of screeching weasel but as far as the particular style that we're trying to trace back, I think that in my opinion, obviously, Descendants and Screeching Weasel are the more important bands to hit on. That being said, if you disagree, that's totally fucking valid, and you can go and get at me on Instagram, I'm not going to be upset. Yeah, no one's argued with Chuck online yet on our Instagram or through our email, so if someone could please do that, just argue with him. Just say something to him. He's lonely. Yeah, he gets sad every day. There's not an argument happening. Come on, guys. Someone argue with him, please. please. Take me down a peg or peg me or... I literally knew you were going to say that. Right when you oh said take me down God. a peg, I just knew you were going to fucking say that. I fucking knew it. But with these two <laughs> bands, that being Descendants and Screeching Weasel, cemented in the North American punk scene, Along with some other more melodic, but not necessarily pop-punk acts like the Minutemen, the Dead Milkmen, or the Vandals, certain musical elements that weren't really a huge thing in punk since around the Ramones era were starting to gain big traction again. These elements included super fun, intentionally upbeat melodies played up-tempo on distorted buzzsaw guitars, along with catchy earworm hooks and relatable lyrics about love, parents, school, or anything else you might find in a 14-year-old's journal. Hey, yo, Chuck, what do you know about some 14-year-old's journal? What? I just ask you, boy, Drake tells me everything yes. I need to know. <laughs> February 19th. February 19th. <laughs> that was hilarious. The thing was, though, that while these bands, and honestly, punk as a whole from this era, was kind of, like, starting to creep its way into the mainstream, it really wasn't dominating the charts, and honestly, it never really did. Like, you'd have to be with a pretty specific group of people if you wanted to have a car sing-along to Screeching Weasel. As a side note, if you are one of those people, please DM me. I don't have very many friends. This is Fox. Truck has little to no friends and needs some that will bring a positive influence into his misguided life. I don't know if the Screeching Weasel fans are gonna do that, but... <laughs> Anyways, the bands that made up the scene just weren't hitting those top tens all that frequently, if at all, and they certainly weren't storming the number one spot. 
Like, I don't think that Dead Kennedys ever had a top 10 from this era. I don't think Descendants ever had a top 10. Basically, these bands that were sort of shaping pop punk out of hardcore were not hitting those number one spots, not hitting those top 10s, not really even getting to the Billboard Top 100 all that frequently. It was underground music. It was genuinely just underground music. But... The same thing can't be said, however, about the bands that were drawing influence from these groups and who were just starting to peak over the horizon. Some of these bands would repeatedly go on to make the top 10 charts, in some cases becoming some of the best-selling music acts of all time. And they would, alongside acts like Sublime and Rancid, push punk into the mainstream in a way that the world had never seen before, helping to define a decade of music along the way. Some of these bands include The Offspring, Blink-182, and, of course, Green Day. Now, in 1989, the year after to dropped, The Offspring released their debut, self-titled album. Now, this album wasn't a huge mold breaker, and while it was definitely poppy, I would probably put it closer to skate punk than strictly pop punk. It would, however, set the stage for the 1990 release of Green Day's debut album, 39 Smooth. Now this album didn't pick up a ton of attention, but listening back to it, it definitely presents a subtle evolution of the pop punk sound. It's more upbeat and catchy than anything their contemporaries had really put out. It also focused more heavily on traditional song structures and, interestingly enough, placed a pretty heavy emphasis on clean vocals and vocal melodies, something that wasn't unheard of, but definitely wasn't the most common. There were some skate punk bands that were doing similar stuff, kind of, but it was usually in a faster, thrashier way. I would probably make the case that Green Day focused more heavily on vocals than the vast majority of their contemporaries. So you keep mentioning skate punk, but what is skate punk? Because I don't know if I know exactly what that is. So skate punk is kind of like, again, like it's one of those things where it's like it's a subgenre, so it's like really hard to define. But basically, if I had to give you a super brief synopsis, it's like pop punk, but super fast and super thrashy. So like Bad Religions Suffer is like the perfect example of a skate punk album. It's got a fair amount of melody in it, but it's also just, like, crazy fast. It's like if hardcore and, like, pop-punk pop-punk, like, pop-punk proper, if those two subgenres had a baby, it would basically be skate-punk. It's the kind of shit you would find on, like, the Tony Hawk game soundtracks in a lot of ways. Okay, I was actually going to ask you a question similar to that, then. Like, is it, or was it dubbed skate-punk because it was used for this, uh, like... How do I describe it? Those 90s handheld camera... Yeah, like... the skate compilations. Yeah, like yeah, with, with the fucking... Um, the, the fisheye lens and shit. Like, was that type yeah. of music used for those? Yeah, I can't, okay. like, definitively confirm this, but I'm pretty sure that had a pretty big part in it. Like, it definitely... It was used for those fucking compilations, and, like, I think that is part of how it got its name. Um, so yeah, like bands like cool. Bad Religion are in there. The Offspring, in a lot of ways, are kind of in there. Uh, some earlier No Effect stuff is definitely in there, like that kind of shit. But regardless, I think that one could maybe make the case, and full disclosure, this might be a hot take, but I think the case could be made 
that Green Day was one of, if not the first, full-on intentionally pop-punk bands since the early days of punk. And I know I'm going to get crucified for saying that, because genre is an extremely tricky thing, and subgenre even more so. And I could very well be overlooking some band that I've never heard of. But my point is that while most pop-punk bands that had come prior to Green Day can be considered skate-punk slash pop-punk, or hardcore slash pop-punk, or ska-punk slash pop-punk, or whatever... Green Day came right out of the gate making pop punk and never really strayed from that too much. Like we said, Descendants started out as a hardcore band. Screeching Weasel started out as a hardcore band. A lot of these other poppier punk bands were like college rock or like art rock type shit. Green Day was full on pop punk from the word go. Nevertheless, it was Green Day's second album, released just a year later in 1991, that would more or less kick off the 1990s punk and pop-punk obsession. Alongside, of course, Smells Like Teen Spirit and Nirvana's Nevermind in general, which, while not necessarily being pop-punk or debatably even punk, definitely blew open the doors for alternative music to get major airplay. Regardless, this Green Day album, their second, Kerplunk, went all in on pop-punk, dropping any and all of the hardcore trappings that were present on releases by earlier formative bands like Descendants and Screeching Weasel. It was clean, tight, poppy, relatable, and cemented Green Day's distinct instrumental sound along with Billy Joe's distinct vocal style. And the fans fucking loved it. It sold 10,000 copies on its first day, which was not at all bad considering it was released on the indie punk label Lookout Records, the label that would later put out albums for Rancid and Screeching Weasel, among others. The album would eventually go platinum and is now considered by many to be a bit of a classic of 90s punk. From here, the subgenre would continue to find its footing, ushered along by releases like the 1992 albums Ignition by The Offspring and White Trash Two Heaps and a Bean by No Effects, as well as the 1993 albums Recipe for Hate by Bad Religion and How to Clean Everything by Propagandi, plus a host of other fantastic early 90s punk and pop punk releases, a lot of which were put out by Epitaph, Fat Rec Chords, and Lookout Records. Is Green Day's second album considered influential? Because you said it cemented their sound as a band, but how did that affect acts that put out projects after them? I think it probably was influential, not in a more minor way. Like, if you put that album beside anything that Descendants put out, it's like a footnote. But it was definitely influential, in a sense, in in just kind of like, it was part of the sound that was developing. So it was influential in that it helped continue to develop the, the sound that was like on its way to becoming fully realized, basically. Does that make sense? Yeah, sort of like it needed to be there for the rest of the sound to continue growing in that direction, right? Uh, I don't know if it needed to be there, but it definitely helped. And there's like a whole debate about whether this kind of music would sound the same if it hadn't been there. So it's kind of up in the air. I'm going to say yes, it was influential. It wasn't formative, though. Okay, alright, yeah, fair enough. But I should probably note that in general, this era was considered to be the 90s punk revival, 
and punk was getting more attention than it had at any point since the early 80s, if not even more than that. Punk was really starting to make its way into the mainstream. And this is likely a contributing factor to the absolute fucking smash mainstream success of Green Day's third full album, Dookie, released in 1994. This album was full-on pop-punk in every sense, and its success, and arguably by extension the attention that it helped to bring to pop-punk as a whole, literally fucking cannot be overstated. Now this shit, even when I was researching it, was hard for me to wrap my head around, so I'm just going to try to give you some context. Bad Religion and No Effects are considered to be among the best-selling punk acts of all time. Like, they're up there. No Effects has sold just over 8 million total records worldwide, according to their Wikipedia page, and Bad Religion has sold just over 5 million worldwide. Green Day, on the other hand, sold just short of 12 million copies of just this album, Dookie, in just America. Worldwide, it has sold just short of 20 million fucking copies. Two years after its release, it had gone platinum nine times, and it is currently on track to go double fucking diamond. Well within the band's lifetime. It only needs 250,000 more sales, and it's there. And this is an album that's named after shit. <laughs> Jesus. This album literally put Green Day on the list of best-selling artists of all time. If you go to the Wikipedia page for best-selling musical acts, Green Day is on there with Michael fucking Jackson. Holy fuck, I didn't even realize how big they were. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. At their peak, Jesus. dude... They were doing numbers that nobody fucking does. I don't even think Drake does these numbers. Like That's a 40-minute album, too. That's not even, like, that long. No, I mean, the, re the replayability of it is probably fucking... Well, really... How many songs have 40 minutes? 14. That's it? Yeah. And it's double fucking diamond, Jesus. It's about to be. Not quite, but it's getting... Oh, yeah, soon to be, but still. At the time of, at the, time of the recording of this episode, it's 250,000 short. Which is nothing, considering the fact that Double Diamond means, like, I think 20 million. Yeah. Holy fuck. Needless to say, Green Day is one of, if not the biggest pop-punk bands to date. And this kind of mainstream success was literally fucking unheard of in the punk scene. Pop or otherwise. People just didn't do these numbers that were making fucking punk and pop-punk music. And the success of this album would open the door for more pop-punk albums in the same vein to achieve mainstream success as well. In general, it kinda had the effect of cementing pop-punk as a mainstream music institution, or at the very least, showed the world that pop-punk was potentially profitable on a level that no one had really considered it to be before this. And around this time, the mid-90s, the mainstream popularity of pop-punk kinda hit a bit of a fucking fever pitch. Two months before Dookie's release, the Offspring album Smash had dropped, 
and while it took a while to gain traction, by October of 94, it peaked at number 4 on the Billboard charts, which makes sense considering it's a fucking phenomenal album. Since we've been looking at music in the 90s, did Nevermind bump out any of these albums or these artists at the time, do you think? Like, sure, it's a different genre, but I feel like many pop-punk fans would have also been listening to grunge at the same time. So my thought is that maybe Nirvana hindered the possible growth of some of these pop-punk acts during that time, solely based on who had the attention. What do you think? Um, I think that, like, Nevermind specifically was, I think it hit number one on billboard in 1992 so it was a little bit before this but i think as a whole grunge gaining that kind of attention in the super late 80s super early 90s like i think that actually kind of helped because alternative music and like alt rock i think being on the charts in that way i think that kind of paved the way for like other forms of alternative rock like pop punk specifically to climb the charts so it was like i don't think it hindered i think it helped i think that everybody you know radio stations were like oh fucking we can play nirvana never mind we can play songs off that album on the radio so we can play like punk and like pop punk and stuff like that like the, it's the same audience you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah okay that makes a lot of sense i'm glad to hear that it like it didn't sort of hinder or diminish any other big artist at the time it's just it's kind of nice to hear when like other music supports other music other artists or other artists sort of thing even if it's not on purpose it's still nice to hear yeah and like kurt cobain and nirvana in general were extremely supportive of like underground music and like punk and stuff like that like uh i know that nirvana unplugged they had he covered a song by the meat puppets who were like this like weird kind of off-the-wall, hardcore, cowpunk band, and he brought one of the members of Meat Puppets on stage at one point during uh, MTV Unplugged Nirvana. So, like, he was always very supportive of the scene. Makes sense, yeah. Now, I just point out this one album, uh, the Offspring album, Smash, because it kind of demonstrates what was happening around this specific time. But I can't fucking sit here and just start combing through the rest of the big pop punk albums that dropped in the latter half of the decade. Instead, I'm just going to do a quick fire round of some of the bigger albums that dropped between 1994 and 1999. So, here we go. I'm going to try to do this in one breath. Before you start, can I time you? Like, I'm going to sort of talk... Like, I can see what you're going to say, but I want to have a stopwatch to time you and see how long it takes you to get through this. Yeah, go ham, do your thing. Alright, as soon as you start, I'll, I'll press start. In 94, in addition to Dookie and Smash, we got Punk and Drublick by No Effects, Bowling for Soup by Bowling for Soup, Stranger Than Fiction by Bad Religion, Weezer by Weezer. 95 gave us Blink 180's Two's debut, Cheshire Cat, The Ramones' last, deb- last album, Adios Amigos, Haas by Legwagon, Insomniac by Green Day, Outcome the Wolves by Rancid, and Live Fast Diarrhea by The Vandals. 96 brought Pinkerton by Weezer, Everything Sucks by Descendants, Goldfinger by Goldfinger, and Life in General by MXPX. 97 had Dude Ranch by Blink 182, Double Platinum by Legwagon, Nimrod by Green Day, and Full Circle by Pennywise. 98 delivered Hitler bad vandals good by the vandals god damn it by the alkaline trio mass nerder by all and americana by the offspring featuring pretty fly for a white guy one of the most overplayed tracks of all time in my opinion and finally 99 grace was with enemy of the state by blink 182 clarity by jimmy eat world emo by screeching weasel hopeless romantic by the bouncing souls and more betterness by no use for a name 
I'm Yo, I'm fucking crazy. so impressed. That was crazy. Holy shit. I thought you were gonna stop like fucking like the last like couple sentences or a couple you lines. You kept that pace all the way through. Holy Ooh, shit. I literally practiced that. How the fuck did you do that? I don't know if my mic's gonna catch it, but I'm clapping. I'm clapping right now. Yeah. If I speak, it took you 47, 47 seconds. And I think if you said that in a normal tone, it would take you probably like upwards of two minutes. So like, that was you, insane. You basically just said that in like double speed. I'm so Thank impressed. You. I am, Thank I am you, everybody. Impressed. What I just listed are just some of the bigger albums slash albums by bands that I personally am aware of or like. It doesn't even scratch the surface of the pop punk output from that time period. Yeah, I feel like this genre is the type to have had a booming underground scene all over the place. When I told my dad about this episode topic, he started showing me pop punk bands from the GTA and Hamilton that were active in the 80s and 90s. That I had never heard of before and like they were very obscure obscene sort of bands that I'm like well, how the fuck do you even know about these like what is this yeah pop punk is just like I mean punk it was especially at its inception it was kind of inherently underground so like a lot of these like pop punk and just punk in general has like a booming underground scene because that was like the only way it could kind of like exist for a long time so it's not it's not super mm -hmm. surprising stylistically it makes a lot of sense for the the genre so needless to say pop punk was in a pretty good place its sound was well established there were a ton of bands in the subgenre it was routinely making it onto the charts and independent record labels that were putting out pop punk like epitaph founded by brett gerwitz of bad religion or fat rick chords founded by fat mike of no effects were absolutely killing it as more bands entered the scene the sound continued to evolve in every direction and by the mid-2000s, pop-punk was goddamn everywhere. The thing was that the genre lines were also blurrier than they had ever been. Subgenres like emo rock and metalcore were also dominating the scene, and it's kind of up for debate what genre some of the bands out of the scene would actually fall into, and whether or not they could be considered pop-punk. But that debate is for a whole other fucking side episode. Not even going to touch on it right now. I would have to watch like 120 hours of Finn McKinty fucking videos to even broach that. Regardless, the developments in the genre that are probably the most important for our purposes and tied most directly to the pop punk revival that was to come include 1. The strong emo and metalcore influences that had crept their way into the genre thanks to artists like Fallout Boy, My Chemical Romance, Yellow Card, AFI, and A Day to Remember. Some of which I should probably point out are debatably emo rock bands, especially My Chemical Romance, but I'm gonna throw them in here for our purposes. And the second development was Avril Lavigne, for reasons that I will get into in a second. See, in the very late 2000s and early 2010s, pop-punk hit a bit of a wall in terms of mainstream success. It's not that there wasn't great pop-punk coming out at this time. One of my favorite pop-punk albums came out in 2011. It's just that pop-punk acts stopped charting the way they were in the mid-90s to mid-late 2000s, and attention just kind of started shifting away from it. It never died, it just stopped being the hot thing that everyone was paying attention to. And, in a sense, it kinda started to rest on its laurels. It relied on its dedicated, die-hard fanbase. Well, I feel like pop-punk is acknowledged and widely known, and ev like everyone knows about it. 
but it seems as if it just hasn't been able to break into the mainstream over the last decade. But I will say in the past couple of years, I think that we have seen a lot more artists genre blending and shedding light on pop punk again. Oh, 100%. And, you know, during this era, there were new bands that were coming out. Bands like Knuckle Puck, Real Friends, and Man Overboard. Who, by the way, Man Overboard are the ones responsible for that, like, defend pop punk shirt that was fucking everywhere for a couple years. You probably saw it with the one with the fucking, like, AK-47 on it. I have oh, no yeah. idea. I have no idea what you're talking about. I actually know about. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, see, that was Man Overboard. <laughs> Anyways, these were fucking solid bands. They did decently enough commercially, and they kept playing big punk festivals. Warped Tour was still pulling numbers, and they even kept evolving the sound, taking more influence from emo and metalcore, resulting in an even more serious and often heavier-sounding pop punk than what you would have heard at any point during the early to mid-2000s. In fact, there was so much new music coming out and evolving the sound at this time that Finn McKinty has dubbed this period the revival that wasn't. Now that you've said this, I feel like I've heard a lot of this music from this time. It won't really make sense, but like, I can hear the music you're talking about in my head. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this small era of pop punk has a very distinct sound compared to other eras of it. This might also be because I grew up with some people. I have some friends who like listen to this type of music, so that's why I know it so well, but I don't know. No, yeah, a hundred percent. It's it's got a it's got its own sound, a hundred and ten percent. And a lot of the artists that would go on to make alternative rap and shit like that and pop punk revival music would be super influenced by these groups because that's what they grew up on. You know what I mean? Like they it has a very distinct sound and it was very influential to a lot of like alternative and like emo rap type stuff. But regardless, the reason that this era was the revival that wasn't was because the bands that were coming out at this time just weren't going mainstream in the same way that Axe had 10 or 15 years before. Focus was shifting primarily to rap and R&B, as well as the occasional emo pop or emo rock band, but this was around when, like, YMCMB was really starting to blow up, and that was sort of where the mainstream was, was looking at the time. Shut up, Drake. Then... The best thing to happen to the genre since Dickie's shorts started creeping its way into the general music scene. And that was alternative rap. Now, on our first episode, we covered the rise of alternative rap, starting with Raider Clan and their associated acts like Schema Posse, XXXTentacion, and Sesh Hollow Waterboys. This new kind of rap, which incorporated elements of metal, punk, and emo rock into hip-hop, was, in my opinion, what opened the cultural space for pop-punk to make its way back into the mainstream. First truck, no matter what fucking genre we do, you need to pull hip-hop back into it, eh? I mean, I'm not upset. <laughs> making Nier and I more comfortable and more interested in what you have to say, but, like, damn. You guys Every aren't gonna fucking time. know... You're not gonna know what the hell I'm talking about unless I bring rap into it, so you're both welcome. You're not wrong. You're making me more interested now. Now, I would probably argue that this cultural opening, birthed out of alternative rap, started sometime around 2016 or 2017, and some of the artists and groups that would come out of this would lay the groundwork for the pop-punk revival. 
Groups like Goth Boy Click, which included the likes of Lil Peep, of course, as well as Wiccaface Springs Eternal, who is actually the lead vocalist for an emo pop punk band called Tiger's Jaw, and the group Boyfriend, comprised of Lil Aaron, Lil Lotus, and Smart Death, who are also all individual artists that make pop punk and emo rap. This was just the cultural side, though. On the technological side, the advancement of production softwares like VSTs granted individual artists the realization that they didn't need to be part of a four-piece band to make the kind of punk and pop-punk music that they had grown up listening to, and to get traction doing it. Aren't VSTs just um, uh, DAWs, like digital audio interfaces? Or yeah, that, that's, that's my understanding. Uh, like, are they like VSTs, the exact same thing? Pretty much, yeah, but, like, VS, like, shit is, like, I'm, I actually could be wrong, because I haven't made music in forever, and I never used any of this shit when I did, but, um, like, my understanding is that, like, a VST is, like, like, you know how you can get, like, plugins for Fruity Loops that make it sound like you're playing a, like, guitar when you, like, mm-hmm. play on your keyboard and shit like that? Yeah. Like, that's kind of what I'm referencing, like, shit that, like, imitates like, live instrumentation and stuff like that, you know what I mean? And lets okay. you put filters on it. And aside from this kind of, like, virtual studio technology kind of advancing, this was also sort of, in my opinion, why Avril Lavigne was so important. Because she paved the way for individuals, as opposed to groups, to get big attention in pop punk. And when that was coupled with advancing music tech, people had the potential to become big players in the pop punk scene and catch the attention of major labels just by making music out of their bedrooms. Alright, you're probably gonna fucking hate me for this, but I'm, I'm gonna be this guy again. Um, just when you said this, it was reminding me of something I read uh, this week about Frank Sinatra. Basically, like, Frank Sinatra was the, the, the per- person to bring like, individual artists and individual singers into the mainstream, because before that, the mainstream was, like, big bands. It was the big band era, and Frank Sinatra was the first one to be like, oh oh, you can like an artist that's not part of a big band, it's just, like, one person. Okay, sure, Avril Lavigne was Frank Sinatra, except not a <laughs> wife-beating white guy. He beat his wife? What? He was fucked. He beat every yeah. woman he came into contact yeah. with for, like, 35 fucking years. He was I mean, fucked. Also, that bear mafia ties and shit, too, with them. Probably. Oh, yeah, that's big facts. I, I'm, not, I'm not calling <laughs> Avril Lavigne. Frank Sinatra of today, by the way. I'm just saying, like in terms of like what she did, there's a there's a correlation there. No, I see, I see what you're saying, and you're not wrong. Yeah. And then another major factor that aided the subgenre's revival was the negation of an element that was killing it up until this point. Not killing it in a good way, killing it in a bad way. See, in an article for Loudwire, writer Yasmin Suman, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, very accurately points out that pop punk pretty much since its inception, has been dominated by white dudes. I mean, just in this episode, the vast majority of the bands we touched on are just a collection of white guys, or at the very least, just guys. At the start of this episode, I was going to bring something up about this, but I figured you'd get to it, so there you go. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a major thing. And this white boys club, and the often misogynistic and homophobic lyrics that it brought with it, made the scene kind of intimidating for people of color and often members of the LGBTQ plus community to try to hop into. Like, the Descendants, especially on their early albums, were just, like, homophobic and misogynistic as all fuck. 
like I would kind of describe their music as like incel core. They've got lyrics talking about women's genitals smelling like fish and like literally yeah. lyrics like I'm paraphrasing, but literally shit like I don't want to be around all you whores, like literally just like wow. calling women whores and like just straight up incel shit like That's full on gross. Ew. It's super gross. And like, you know, I don't think they fucking were trying to be intentionally harmful or anything like that. But the kind of environment that it fostered was not good for diversity in any sense. But as the scene has kind of evolved into, you know, the 2010s, the late 2010s, diversity sort of became a bit of the new mainstream. And with that, it became way easier for a way more diverse cast of artists to pop into the scene. And the fact that alternative rap opened up alternative music in general to more diversity definitely doesn't hurt either. Because with more diversity often comes new perspectives, new cultural influences, and in some cases, new life for a genre in general. I sort of brought this up earlier, but this really answers the question of how other acts from other genres have begun blending into their music. I think it's so fucking cool when artists do this. Like, we get to hear the creative projects of different artists from different genres throwing their best ideas in a bowl and stirring it together to usually make something really cool and really interesting. I just think it's so cool to see this kind of music open up to way more people, and I'm glad it's fucking happening. But the final factor that really jump-started the pop-punk revival, the part that completed the circuit, if you will, is one of the most powerful forces known to humankind. TikTok. Oh god. <laughs> oh fuck. If you haven't already caught it, pop punk nostalgia is rampant on TikTok and to an extent Instagram Reels. You've probably heard Dear Maria count me in on TikTok and there's the whole it was never a phase like trend on TikTok. Oh, I love that trend. <laughs> I fucking love that trend too. <laughs> Plus, there's just a ton of love for emo and pop punk in general on the internet, which is probably in no small part due to alternative rap, a subgenre that blew up off the internet, pulling so heavily from these genres, as well as the fact that a lot of the early Web 2.0 netizens grew up on pop punk, specifically from the MySpace and early Tumblr waves. That was their fucking childhood shit. I was going to add something on here, but I kind of realized you just said it. Like, you just nailed exactly what I was going to say, which was that I think it's becoming a trend because all of us sort of grew up on that music or heard that music when we were younger. So that's why it's like almost like coming back or like it's trendy now because it's so nostalgic for a lot of us. But yeah, you basically already said that. So basically, the way I see it is like this. Tech advancements in music production software made it so that anyone could make pop punk. Diversity being the new mainstream made it so anyone could join the scene, and TikTok nostalgia brought this kind of music back into mainstream consciousness, or at the very least semi-mainstream consciousness. When all these factors collided, a pop-punk revival was pretty much all but inevitable, and the form it took was a bunch of already mainstream artists hopping onto the wave, artists like Willow Smith and Machine Gun Kelly, and they brought a bunch of attention to this subgenre. See, as much as I love to see this and love to hear Will Smith on anything, uh, as a fan of the genre yourself, do you think that other artists who primarily work in other genres who come do pop punk and popularize it 
uh, are sort of washing out the authenticity of it because all of a sudden the popular acts and names aren't acts that are pop punk through and through. And before you answer, I want to repeat again, I don't think there's anything wrong with the genre blending, and I think the advancement of music is going to be because of this. Artists have no boundaries and should be able to explore whatever like art form suits them. In short, no. I'm not a purist. My whole thing is, like, I don't care what music you were making when you started making music, how you got into it, I don't give a fuck about any of that. As long as you're making genuinely solid music, like, if you can put out genuinely good music and have a genuinely good show where people can come and like mosh and rock out to the fucking music that they loved growing up in a new refreshed era way more power to you i'm there for a hundred percent of the way awesome okay so you agree with me but pretty much yeah yeah do you think that there are people out there who are more purists and see this as like um sacrilegious to their genre and like oh my god they're like washing it out they're ruining my genre blah 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 fuck yes gatekeeping in the like gatekeeping in punk and metal is like some of the worst gatekeeping that you will ever fucking find it's just fucking horrible like literally like fucking grown ass like 30 year old men will literally be like you're not really into pop punk you you don't know descendants you you don't know screeching weasel and 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 husker do and Minutemen. you're not a real punk at all it's like fuck off like they're 100 percent purists and gatekeepers and i don't think they do anything for the genre if anything i think they push the genres that they love to their death faster because if you're actually mm. like if you're actively holding everyone out at arm's length away from the genres that you claim to love so much then you'll never get new fans into those genres they'll never be listeners and the genre will fucking die that's just how i see it Totally agree. Yeah, without that, the those genres would never grow and expand and become, you know, better versions of themselves. Exactly. Yeah. But at the same time that some of these mainstream artists who jumped onto the pop punk wave, like Willow Smith or Machine Gun Kelly, who I brought up before, at the same time that was happening, there was also and is also a bunch of underground and bubbling up artists, artists like Lil Lotus, Lil Aaron, Smart Death, Fishnark, etc., who had been making this kind of music for a while. And these artists ensured that there was already a new pop-punk scene and catalog of music to go with it, just waiting to be explored by the waves of new, younger fans who are getting into this music for the very first time. On top of these factors driving attention to the new wave, the fact that a lot of this new wave is receiving some strong support from the old guard is probably pretty helpful as far as pulling in older fans goes. The best example of this is Travis Barker, the drummer from Blink-182. It kind of feels like Travis Barker is fucking everywhere when it comes to pop-punk revival, which is why I wanted to shout him out. Here is just a short list of some of the pop-punk revival artists that he has worked with. Poor Stacy, Lil Lotus, Youngblood, Machine Gun Kelly, Ian Dior, Willow Smith, 93 Punks, which is Vic Mensa's punk band, Casper, Kenny Hoopla, and that's just in pop punk revival. That's not mentioning his work in alternative rap, emo rap, and trap metal at all, which he also has been heavily involved with. And I just wanted to bring that up because I think that this is the kind of support that pop punk revivalism needs if it's going to be more than just a passing trend. It's a little early to call anything definitively, you know, whether or not it's going to be a staple and hang around for a while 
because the term pop punk revivalism pretty much only started getting thrown around within the last like two years at most. But the prospect of it, how much support it's getting, and the sheer amount of talent that some of these young artists have sure as hell has a lot of people fucking excited about what's on the horizon for pop punk. Probably for the first time since the 2000s. And if you grew up on some of the early pop punk, like Screeching Weasel, Bad Religion, Descendants, and No Effects in the same way that I did, this is a huge fucking deal. And as long as you're not a massive dickhead gatekeeping purist, you're probably really fucking excited about it. And uh, with that being said, I think that's all we have to say. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. We're only on our third episode, but so far this is by far the most exciting episode for me personally. So I'm so grateful for everyone that dropped by to hear it. I really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you liked this episode and want to keep up to date with what we're doing, you can follow our Instagram at howthefckpod. That's at H-O-W-T-H-E-F-C-K-P-O-D on Instagram at howthefckpod. Um, uh, also... We post like music all the time that we're all listening to at the moment or like just new stuff that we're into. So if you want to check out some new music and find out some more music that you might not know of, follow us on Instagram. Yes, absolutely. We do be keeping active on on the music side. Um, in addition to that, all of our new episodes get linked there. And, you know, we're constantly putting up stuff that relates to the episodes and just cultural content in general. We also love DMs from anybody who fucking bothers to listen to us so if you want to send us a correction tell us you hated it tell us that our favorite music is shit that we're wrong whatever you can send us a dm like i said at h-o-w-t-h-e-f-c-k-p-o-d on instagram how the f-c-k pod or you can also do any of that via email if you'd like our email is h-t-f-d-w-g-h-p-o-d at gmail.com that's just like the first letter of every word of the title of the fucking podcast how the fuck did we get here pod at gmail.com and if you'd like to we would really fucking appreciate it if you could follow us on spotify it'll notify you when we put up new episodes so if you actually do like our podcast and are willing to give us a chance as we kind of find our footing for this thing we would super appreciate it and it looks really good in our Spotify analytics, which makes us feel really good about ourselves. <laughs> so if you feel like boosting some losers' egos, you know, that's how you can do it. Please help. Please. We need it. Uh, we'll have some more stuff coming very soon. We're currently working on the Culture Talk episodes, which are like our little side episodes that we've kind of been doing. School just started for us, so we're kind of slammed with that. But we're yeah. we're constantly kind of pushing and like getting stuff out there. So it's not quite ready yet but we've got a lot of ideas in the tube uh ready to be fired out of the barrel so if you like what we're doing so far stick with us and we'll have lots more stuff coming for you soon and before we end off of course um we have to shout out our sources uh the sources that we used for this episode were who invented pop punk by the punk rock mba uh allmusic.com the article Screeching Halt by Jim DeRogatis, r slash Green Day, you know, Reddit. The book Nobody Likes You by Mark Spitz, Pitchfork.com, Green Day FM forward slash charts, 
and the article Pop Punk's Inevitable Comeback by Yasmin Suman. Again, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. By Yasmin Suman or Summon for Loudwire. Uh, and then also, before Dookie Parts 1 and 2, How Punk Became Pop by the YouTube channel Trash Theory. If you want a more in-depth look than what we put together here, I would definitely recommend checking that out. They got a two-parter and they pretty much go year by year of how pop punk developed. So if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of it, that's your spot. And then finally, TikTok, Travis Barker and the Pop Punk Revival by Gabby Felito for the Vermont Cynic. And those are our sources. That's our episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. We love each and every one of you. Please continue to support us. We desperately need the ego boost. <laughs> all right. God bless everybody. We love you all. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it. Uh-uh. Bye-bye. She's got a cover.